If you have your Bible this morning, please turn to John 21 today. Have you ever felt like you've lived the same moment twice? If you have your Bibles, uh, open to John 21 this morning. Have you ever felt like you've lived the same moment twice? All right, I'm just kidding. Uh, But for real, uh, there is this phenomenon in life that most of you have uh, probably experienced that actually deals with that exact feeling of living a moment twice. Uh, Many of you are familiar with it, you might have experienced it yourselves. It's the term déjà vu, which is actually French for uh, already seen. And it's this kind of feeling, this overwhelming sense of familiarity with a moment that shouldn't really be familiar at all. Uh, maybe an example of, you know, if you're traveling maybe to England for the first time or, or another country and you've never been there before and you're in one of their many cathedrals or museums and boom, it just like hits you that you've been in that exact spot before that you never have. Or maybe it's a discussion you're having with friends around uh, a dinner table and you're talking about, uh, you know, some current political topic and, and all of a sudden you just get this feeling like you've had this conversation before. You've experienced this very thing, the same friends, the same dinner, the same topic. As we come to John 21 this morning, it's kind of a deja vu moment uh, back from the first week of this series that we've been going through. We've gone through this series for several weeks now called DMs or direct messages, looking at the things that Jesus said to those uh, who were closest to him, the the words that he imparted to his disciples. And we began this series with Jesus' call to his first four disciples with this call of trust me. And this began with a miraculous catch of fish. uh, And likewise, we see this uh, another miraculous catch again today. It's kind of bookends on Jesus' interactions with his disciples. From the first call to one of his final interactions, they both resolve around this same kind of miracle. But though this is kind of the same uh, miracle, these deja vu moments, they are different in a lot of ways. These, these two uh, scenes carry very different emotional weight. Back in Luke chapter 5, as Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, those first four disciples, it was a time of excitement for them. To leave everything behind and and go with Jesus, the sense of pursuing Him, to join His kingdom at the ground level, and to really get in on what God was trying to accomplish from the very beginning. But now as we come to John chapter 21, the feeling is very different. Jesus had been crucified. It seemed as if the kingdom had failed. They went back to their old jobs, to their old way of life. And the women had, yes, discovered the empty tomb, and though Jesus had appeared to the disciples already in his resurrected form, I can't help but imagine that at this point they might have been wondering, did we make that all up? Did, did, we, did we just fabricate this in the weight of our crushing grief? I mean, Jesus has appeared to us, but where is he now? He kind of has popped up here and there, but he's never really given us new kingdom marching orders. But Jesus is about to show up in a a big way this morning and leave little doubt about having come back from the dead and and just what he wants them to do, that there's still work to be done. And so Jesus, this morning, as he shows up, before he can tell his disciples to carry on the work that he has done for them, or began for them, he must first deliver uh, another direct message. And this one is actually very pointed, very specific. It's to Peter himself. And Jesus tells Peter, Love me. Love me. Verse 1, John 21 says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. 
It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also called Didymus, Nathan, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. I was kind of thinking about the the situation, the scene, uh, the background behind this moment this week. Uh, and how the disciples kind of must have felt at this point, specifically uh, as it relates to my own experience. Uh, this week, uh, yesterday in fact, was actually the 12th anniversary of uh, the death of one of my grandfathers, my mom's dad. And he was kind of the, the patriarch uh, of the family. My mom is one of four kids, and so I have lots of cousins and lots of family. And his death was pretty sudden and shocking. And so I just kind of was brought back to that day that you know, all of us were kind of sitting around as a family. There's some shock. You know, some of us were reminiscing. Some were still processing. All of us were grieving. And, and some were just kind of trying to stay busy in the light of that moment. And I, I kind of feel like Peter is that stay busy kind of guy in this moment. Yes, in many ways, the grief has turned to joy with the appearance of Jesus. But still, there is some confusion and some processing going along. And Peter, he can't just sit around. And so he goes back to what he knows best, back to fishing. But they're not having much luck. In fact, they've had no luck at all. Uh, When a guy from the shore calls out the one thing that you don't want to hear when you've not had very much luck in fishing. says, hey, have you caught anything? No, but thanks for bringing it up. (laughs) But this stranger on the beach has a suggestion that is eerily familiar. He gives them a, a slight adjustment. He just says, throw your nets on the other side. And I can imagine the the thought process of the disciples being similar back to that first miraculous catch that Jesus told them to do. You know, oh, right, because, you know, some guy on the beach, some beach mom, knows more about fishing than us, the professional fishermen. We've been out here all night with no success, but surely eight feet of difference to the the other side of the boat is really just going to have them flooding into the nets. Okay, we'll humor you, guy. Which is, of course, exactly what happens. And it's in this moment that that kind of deja vu, this moment clicks for the disciples. And we've done this before. That's no beach bum, it's Jesus. Verse 7 says, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, which is how John often refers to himself in his gospel, uh, said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken off and jumped into the water. The other, disciple, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I really love this moment because it's kind of this perfect snapshot of Peter's personality. 
We know that Peter is, is rash and brash, and while sometimes that gets him in tr- trouble on other occasions, uh, it allows him to boldly demonstrate his love and devotion for Jesus. They've been out there fishing all night and hauling these heavy nets. They've gotten hot and sweaty, even in the cool night air. And so Peter is stripped down to his undershirt, but he sees Jesus and he throws on his coat and he leaps headlong into the sea just to get to Jesus as quickly as he can. Have you ever gone swimming in your clothes? They're, they're heavy and awkward, and I can only imagine by the time Peter got to the shore, he was standing there like a big sopping wet dog. And I can picture in that moment that all Peter wanted to do was run up to Jesus and and give him this big bear hug. And just as he has made his move toward Jesus, he smells something. And I know this would sound like something a preacher would say to kind of help narrate the story, to help capture the moment. But John, I think, draws our attention to this very specifically. He uses a very specific word here. And I think he does so intentionally. It's actually a word that's only used twice in the entire Bible. Both of them are in John, just separated by a few chapters. It's the word anthrakion, or charcoal fire. It's used here in John 21 as Jesus is cooking bread and fish on this anthrakion, on this fire. But also we see it in John chapter 18. John 18, 18 says, It was cold, and the servants and their officials stood around an anthrakion, a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also is standing with them, warming himself. And it was while he stood warming himself in this fire that someone said, Hey, aren't you, aren't you one of this guy's disciples? Jesus has been arrested. He's on trial, and Peter is there to watch the proceedings. And someone says, Hey, you're with that guy. Peter says, no, no, no you, you must be thinking of someone else. And someone says, no, I'm sure I've seen you before. I mean, you are a Galilean. And he says, just, you know, just drop it, all right? I don't know the guy. A third instance comes up, and Peter finally says, look, may, may God curse me. Let, he, let, let him strike me dead right here. Let him, let him put a curse on me. And if I, don't, if I know this Jesus, let, let, him, let him act in this moment. I don't know the man. Right after that, a rooster crows and Peter breaks down. He loses it. Because not but a few hours before, he told Jesus, look, even if everyone else, all these other guys, these 11 disciples, even if they abandon you, I would never. And Jesus tells him, Peter, don't write checks you can't cash. Because before the rooster crows at daybreak, before tomorrow, you will deny even knowing me three times. Do you know what sense is strongest tied to memory? Maybe you've been in a store and you pass by the beauty aisle and boom, you get this whiff. It's the perfume that your wife wore on her first, your first date and, and you're transported back. Or maybe you you pull out an old quilt as the weather is getting colder outside and it smells like your grandma's house. She knitted it for you and just like that you're you're transported back. You're like you're with her like a kid all over again. Not too long ago last year I, I visited my old elementary school for the first time since I left and even 20 some years later it still smells exactly the same and it's like roaming the halls in third grade all over again. 
You see, the part of your brain that interprets smells is directly connected to what's called the amygdala and hippocampus, the two parts of your brain that are most responsible for memory. And so as Peter gets to that beach and he's soaking wet and he makes a move toward Jesus, he smells that charcoal fire. And he's thrown back to the night where he resolutely refuted any and all connection to his friend and Lord whom he now stands before. But Jesus is about to do something in Peter and for Peter. In Mark chapter 16, when the women discover that the tomb, uh, Jesus' tomb is empty, I find it interesting that one of the angels tells the women, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified. He is risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go tell his disciples and Peter. And at first it seems like this, dis, this detail and Peter seems unnecessary. I mean, why and Peter? Peter's already one of the disciples. They could all be classified as just that title of the disciples. Why single out Peter? I think the reason is because if I were Peter in this situation, I would probably assume that Jesus would have written me off. He had faced the fire and blown it. And what good is a disciple that denies even knowing his Lord? How could he possibly preach Jesus to crowds and carry on this kingdom mission when he had so easily caved to the questioning of a little servant girl? But Jesus wasn't done with Peter, just as he's never done with us. Verse 15 says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? (laughs) Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus, P- Peter had denied Jesus, and three times Jesus had now affirmed his love for Peter, or had Peter affirm his love for him. And I can't help but think that that charcoal smell had suddenly a different meaning for Peter. What was once the smell of failure is now the smell of forgiveness. And I think of all the things that Jesus could have said when he asked Peter to affirm his love for him, he he could have said, if you love me, you, you prove it. If you love me, promise you'll never do that again. I think of the movie Saving Private Ryan. You might have seen it. It's a fairly old movie now, but uh, Private James Ryan had already lost three brothers to World War II, and so as a morale boost to the war effort, uh, he's been taken in behind you know, enemy lines uh, and not wanting his mother to suffer the loss of her fourth son, eight men were tasked with rescuing this Private Ryan, this low-ranking soldier. And through the course of saving him, all the work they go into, six out of the eight men would lose their lives. 
And in one of the final scenes of the movie, uh, Tom Hanks, his character, is, is laboring with his last breath, and he utters to Private Ryan, and he says, earn this. By which, of course, he means don't, don't spoil the sacrifice of these six men who lost their lives to save you. Earn this. Live up to it. And this might be what you would expect Jesus to say to Peter. You know, if you love me, earn this. Earn this second chance. But the very nature of grace, of course, is that there's nothing that we can do to earn it or deserve it. But while we could never earn grace, it does require a response. As Chris said this morning, we, we put it into action. I find it interesting that Jesus says, do you love me more than these? And I, I wonder what Jesus pointed to in that moment. Did he point to the disciples and say, do you, do you love me more than these guys? Do you love me more than you love them? Or, or maybe do you love me more than these guys love me? Or does he point to, to the fishing boats? I mean, Peter had already given them up once to follow Jesus. Would he be willing to do it again? Whatever it is, Jesus makes clear that following Him must be the priority. And it leads me to wonder, what would He point to in your life? What would Jesus say, do you love me more than watching football? Or do you love me more than the latest tech gadget? Do you love me more than spending time with family? Do you love me more than that feeling that you get when the sermon turns out halfway decent and people pat you on the back on the way out and say, good job? Do you love me more than drugs or alcohol or sex? Do you love me more than... I mean, there's a myriad of things that Jesus could call us to live in response to living out and living in His grace. But we also see that living out grace isn't just sacrificing something in response, but living out a commission from Jesus Himself. When Jesus reinstates Peter... Three times he gives them this commission to to feed my sheep. And being a a shepherd begins with this simple question that all of us can ask. We wake up in the morning and we say, Jesus, how can I feed your sheep today? How can I feed your sheep today? And what are the ways that I can help people feel the love of God? I think of the men in our church who are, do our shut-ins ministry. And they visit different people who aren't able to come to church anymore. Or I think you know, of our upward volunteers who spend countless weekends and, and weekdays and, and Saturdays and, and practice times and you know, just pouring into these kids who not only love basketball, but we want them to love Jesus a little bit more. Or think of those who help out with restoring more, to help these men and women overcome addiction and isolation and generational poverty. You know, I think of the pink ladies at the hospital who volunteer to, to be a helping hand or a shoulder to cry on. Those people who wake up and say, Jesus, how can I feed your sheep today? And you know, I, I wish Jesus would have stopped talking there. He'd reinstated Peter into his grace and he's commissioned him to serve and he's done the same for us and it's a sacrifice, yes, but one that we could rally behind and, and but then he continues. 
verse 18, he says, Very truly, I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, which was a common metaphor for crucifixion in the day. He says, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. I think this is another one of those occasions where if Jesus had a PR manager, he would have said, now Jesus, we've talked about this. You can't go around talking about carrying a cross all the time. We want to to put forward a positive spin, an uplifting face. You're not going to find a chapter on crucifixion and how to win friends and influence people, okay, Jesus? We've been over this. But Jesus tells Peter, because of your love for me, a time is coming when your life will be required of you. Church tradition tells us that indeed Peter was crucified. In fact, he was crucified upside down because he counted himself unworthy to die as Jesus did. But Jesus doesn't just tell us what it might cost to be his disciple, to follow him, to love him, but also what is to be gained. So as Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Loving Jesus, even to the point of death, glorifies and brings glory to God. It allows others to know him more intimately and to see him more clearly. And that is is what is at stake when it comes to loving Jesus, no matter the cost. That others might know him more intimately and see him more clearly. And I'll be real with you. Uh, Loving people, feeding sheep can be a difficult and thankless job. I've heard it said before, aptly put, that sheep bite. And and sometimes even caring for people in the church or, or watching over a flock or being a shepherd as Jesus has called us to be hurts because sheep bite. And you're going to feel exhausted and you're going to be discouraged and let down and wounded and brokenhearted and empty at times. And it sounds like the opposite message that you would want to hear when trying to accomplish a commission. But you would never go into a locker room as a coach and say, all right, listen up, guys. You know, this team, they're a bunch of lightweights. They're a bunch of pansies. We're going to steamroll them, okay? So I want you to go out there and give it your full 10%. No, you go and say, all right, listen up, ladies. These guys are tough. And if you want to win, if you want the glory, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to give it everything you've got. Because when you fight for those whom God loves so that they might know he loves them, even if it takes everything we've got, we get to see God's glory. You will see the glory of God in the faces of the people that are being changed because you told them about the love of Jesus. And you'll see the glory of God in your own face when you realize that he is making you into his likeness. When you're being transformed into the image of his son. Living out this shepherding life, this life that seeks to feed and care for God's people is difficult. But Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let me say that again. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. 
This morning, the invitation I want to extend to you is to not become weary, to not give up. As Jesus has called us and said to us, love me, and in response to that love, to take care of the people whom he loves, even though it's tiresome and weary and difficult at times, let us not give up because it is then that we see the glory of God manifested around us. And so this morning, I, I invite you to live a life that brings glory to God. And maybe that means giving your life to Him for the very, very first time. Maybe you've been like Peter and you've tried to distance yourself from Jesus in the difficult times. And you've said, yeah, I don't know if I'm willing to give Jesus what it takes in this moment, and so I'm just going to step away. But Jesus is calling you to Him. And He's calling you to live out His grace. For others of you, even if you've already made this decision to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, maybe, maybe you just need encouraged to not give up, to not grow weary, to stand strong in the mission that Jesus has given you. If you need encouraged this morning, I'll be up front. Some of our elders will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you, to encourage you and, and to lift you up, to ask you to not grow weary, to help you, to ask God and petition Him to give you the strength that you need to carry on the work that He has given us. Jesus calls us to love Him so that those whom He loves might see His glory. So let's love Him well. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning to thank you for your grace to thank you for the times that you have taken us back when we have been faithless. You prove yourself faithful and full of grace and forgiveness and love. And God, we pray when the times that we have been like Peter and fall short, fallen short of the standard that you have set before us, we pray that we would recognize and accept your forgiveness, that we would affirm our love for you in the response and the ways that we respond to your love in the ways that we care for other people. God, I pray that in the difficult times when we grow weary, we want to, to give up, that you would encourage us and strengthen us to carry on the work that you have given us. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the life that he lived, the death that he died on, on our behalf, and the resurrection, the life that you raised him to, that we will one day experience for ourselves. We pray in the meantime, as we await that resurrection of our own, that you would give us the strength and empower us by your Spirit to love people, to love them well as you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name this morning.